Amen. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We have been uh, now for probably five or six months in the book of Galatians, and today we are wrapping up our study of Galatians, and so I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would, and we are going to read together from Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Reading together, it says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today we thank You for the richness of Your Word. We thank You for its inspiration and authority to speak into our lives. This is so uh, much uh, a treasure to us, Lord, and especially in a world that is spinning out of control. We pray today, God, that Your Word will be unto us an anchor to our souls and a sure foundation for our foot. We also ask, God, that you would illuminate it to our hearts and minds, that we would live according to its precepts, bringing glory to the matchless name of Jesus. And it's his name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. At times, the church has been accused of being a hangout for hypocrites. How many of you have heard something along those lines before? Well, I'd go to church, but hypocrites, right? The late motivational speaker Zig Ziglar once was asking a friend if he would come to church with him, and his friend said, well, I would, but the church is just full of hypocrites. And Zig looked at him with a smile on his face and said, well, there's always room for one more. (laughs) About 15 years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to purchase an old Victorian house and then remodel that house. And you can imagine all of the dust and the plaster and the lath boards and the plumbing and the electrical and all that that had to be pulled out in order for us to be able to remodel it. In fact, we even had to demolish a little shed that was just next to the house that was being used as a carport. And as I was reflecting back on that experience, it reminded me that our Lord was a carpenter, that before he went into full-time ministry, that he was a carpenter. And I wondered if the Lord had maybe engaged in some renovation of his own. And then I remembered a time that the Lord did, in fact, engage in some renovation. Renovation that began with demolition. But it wasn't a Victorian house. It was, in fact, the temple. You see, when Jesus entered the temple, the religious system had become stale and corrupt. The leaders were taking advantage of the poor. They were focusing on rites and religion and rituals rather than on 
a relationship with God. To make matters worse, they were unethical and they were hypocrites. And so with scathing words, Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you shut off the kingdom of heaven, but you fail to enter it yourselves. You devour widows' houses. You pray long prayers to be seen by men. And he identified them as being full of pride. And he called them hypocrites. Not once or twice, but three times Jesus referred to them as hypocrites. Well, in the churches of Galatia, there was a group of religious leaders that had much in common with the Pharisees. They had come in after Paul had left, and they were called the Judaizers. They were focusing on rites, focusing on rituals, taking advantage of young Christians, and they were proud, and they were hypocritical. So today as we wrap up this series on Galatians, I want to take a final look at this struggle that Paul was having with the Judaizers. And as we do, we're going to consider two motives of the Judaizers, two approaches to salvation, and two results of the cross. We begin by considering the two motives of the Judaizers. The first motive was pride. They were proud. Turn and tell your neighbor they were proud. They were proud. In fact, in verse 12, Paul says, those who desire to make you a good, to, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Notice the Judaizers were trying to make a good showing. They wanted to be seen as pious. So they were pursuing the praises of men. And you know, that's always the case of those who are religious without a true relationship with God. They're trying to win salvation through good works. Stressing rituals, stressing ceremonies, stressing rites. Demanding that the Christians, in this case, be circumcised. Making those demands in order to make a good showing. It was all about what it looked like. Well, Cain tried to impress God with his religious efforts didn't he? And how did that work out? God was not impressed and God refused and rejected his offering. There came a time in the history of the children of Israel when they were trying to impress God with their sacrifices, but their hearts were far from God and the Lord rejected their worship. You see, those who are religious with no genuine desire for God are always seeking the approval of men, always wanting to make a good showing, just to make a good showing. Their intention is to stroke their ego. Their motivation is pride. But there was a second motivation of the Judaizers, persecution. Persecution. They sought to avoid persecution. Paul said they're compelling you to be circumcised, again, verse 12, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, the early church was predominantly comprised of converted Jews, Orthodox Jews. 
who had been converted. But those who had not been converted did not agree with salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw Christianity as an illegitimate sect that threatened the orthodox faith. Remember Paul before he was converted? Saul of Tarsus. He persecuted the church, arresting men and women, breaking up families. He even consented to the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith. Well, the Jews under the leadership of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, persecuted the church. No doubt the Judaizers were feeling the heat. They had trusted Christ, but they were not fully trusting Christ. They were playing about the edges of redemption, holding on to the traditions of the fathers. And what's even worse, they were hypocrites. Because Paul tells us in verse 13, they're not keeping the law themselves. They simply wanted to get the Orthodox Jews off their back. How? By getting the new Christians to submit to circumcision. Again, verse 13, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So their motive was pride. Their aim was to avoid persecution and their boast was in the flesh. But with Paul, with Paul, it was exactly the opposite. Verse 17, he says, I bear in my body the scars of Christ. So for Paul, persecution because of the cross was an honor. For Paul, persecution for the cause of Christ was a fantastic privilege. And so Paul's boast was in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ. Again, he says in verse 14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the difference? The Judaizers were putting their confidence in human achievement, trusting in their own efforts and boasting in the flesh. But Paul put his confidence in the Gospel and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his boast was in the cross of Jesus. And that distinction is what separates true gospel from false gospel. That distinction is what separates Paul from the Judaizers. It is what separates biblical Christianity from all other world religions. And so let's take that into consideration and take a look closer then at the two approaches to salvation. There is in our world... Two approaches to salvation. Salvation by human achievement versus salvation by divine accomplishment. Galatians 2 and 21, Paul says, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That if you can obtain righteousness through the law, through the ritual, through the religious trappings of man, then Christ died in vain. In this verse, 
we see the two approaches to salvation. Looking at the first approach, salvation by human achievement. This approach says that salvation is found in human efforts. That it comes through good works, it comes through rites, it comes through rituals. And this was the approach of the Judaizers. They did believe in Christ, but then they added works to their faith. Not works as an evidence of faith, not works as the fruit of the Spirit already working in them, rather works as a means to salvation, a supplement to their faith. In other words, they believed in Christ, but felt that their, that the work of Christ itself was insufficient. That we had to do something in order to receive merit from God. As a result, they believed in a salvation of human achievement. And that is the approach of every world religion with the exception of biblical Christianity. You see, it's easy for us to think and to hear the voices in our culture saying, well, there must be multiple roads to God. But in reality, there are only two approaches to salvation. One approach says you achieve salvation through human effort. And under that rubric fall all of the religions of the world. And then there is another approach that says you are saved by divine accomplishment. It is not what we do, but it is what He has already done. Can you say amen? So let's look at that second approach. Salvation by divine accomplishment. Salvation by human achievement says you are saved by your own efforts. But salvation by divine accomplishment says you are saved by what God has done. And that difference is not a minor difference. That difference is all of the difference in the world. Salvation by human achievement says you are saved by good works, saved by meritorious behavior, saved by doing good, being kind, things of that nature. But salvation by divine accomplishment says you are saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ in His sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 8. He said there in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So Paul tells us that what man could not do, what the law could not do, what the flesh could not do, God did. God did. Salvation by human achievement looks at what man does. Salvation by divine accomplishment looks at what God did. What He did. And the difference between those two approaches is a chasm that cannot be crossed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not one alternative among many. It is the only way to God. The only highway to heaven. 
It is the narrow road. It is the hard way, Jesus said. But it is the path that leads to eternal life. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but He has become the cornerstone. For salvation is found in no other name. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. And that means all of the world religions fall into only one of two categories. Salvation by human achievement or biblical Christianity. Salvation by divine accomplishment. Biblical Christianity alone rests on divine accomplishment. All other religions teach salvation by human achievement. Consider Hinduism. Hinduism has 330 million so-called gods. I don't even know how you can count that high. I mean, where do you draw that number from? 330 million. And these so-called gods are appeased through religious rituals. It's a system of works. One must do good deeds in order to reach the Hindu heaven. And so those good deeds involve things like practicing yoga, reincarnation, presenting offerings to statues and temples. You've got to do all of that if you could perhaps ascend to the Hindu heaven. Consider Buddhism. It's also a religion of human achievement. They say that you reach nirvana by practicing the noble eightfold path. It's all about human works. It has elements of a right view, a right intention, a right speech, a right action, a right livelihood, a right effort, a right mindfulness, and a right concentration. Are you tired yet? (laughs) That's a lot to keep track of. It's a system of salvation by human achievement. Consider Islam. A person's deeds are weighed on Judgment Day according to Islam. It's a quantitative process. If your good deeds outweigh your evil deeds, paradise. If your evil deeds outweigh your good deeds, hell. Perdition. Listen to this passage from the Quran, Surah 7, 8, and 9. Quote, The balance that day will be true. Those whose scale of good works will be heavy will prosper. Those whose scale will be light will find their souls in perdition. End quote. It is a system of human achievement. It's all about what you do. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the followers of Sun Myung Moon, the various cults and sects all have the same basic belief. Salvation is gained by human achievement. Two approaches to salvation, human achievement and divine accomplishment. And biblical Christianity alone says that salvation is gained by divine accomplishment. It is the work of God beginning to end. It is grounded in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul told Pastor Timothy in his second letter to him, he said, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, 
who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What man could not do, what the law could not do, what the flesh could not do, God has done through the death, burial, and resurrection of His beloved Son. Can you say amen? So it is God who saved us, God who called us, God who abolished death and brought us life and immortality through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved, not according to our own works, but we are saved according to His own purpose and grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, not of good works, lest anyone should boast. We cannot boast in the flesh. We can only boast in the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Two approaches to salvation. Human achievement versus divine accomplishment. Biblical Christianity says we are saved by what God has done. All others say we hope to get saved by what we do. But what you and I believe about salvation makes all of the difference not only in this world, but in the world to come. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the Continental Divide. The Continental Divide, of course, is the principal hydrological divide in the Americas. It extends from the Bering Strait up in Alaska all the way down to the Strait of Magellan in South America. And it separates the watersheds that drain rainfall either into the Pacific Ocean or into the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. All of the rain that falls west of the Rockies ends up in the Pacific. All of the rain that falls east of the Rockies ends up in the Gulf of Mexico or in the Atlantic Ocean. Listen, the location of where each raindrop falls determines its destination. Likewise, the cross of Christ is the watershed of human history. It is the line that divides truth from error, heaven from hell, eternal life from eternal destruction. Biblical Christianity declares that salvation is by divine accomplishment, grounded in the crucifixion of Jesus, and that His sacrifice is fully sufficient. Fully sufficient. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ died once for all, the just dying for the unjust. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sacrifice of God or of Christ was the plan of God. The sacrifice of Christ was the plan of God for the people of God to bring us to God. And his precious sacrifice is fully sufficient. Fully sufficient. And so in Titus chapter 3, Paul says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
But according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Praise the Lord. Man-made religion says salvation. Well, that's by human achievement. But biblical Christianity says salvation is by divine accomplishment. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sing it with me. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Wish you could hear what I hear. (laughs) Salvation is from the heart of God, wrought by the power of God through the Son of God. It is utterly and entirely the work of God. A gift freely given to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him as their Savior. And Lord, so how do we receive this gift of salvation? Very simply, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that we are undone. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And then we repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the Gospel tells us, repent and believe in the Gospel. John the Baptist put it like this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's a very serious distinction, these two approaches to salvation. And so we've looked at the two motivations of the Judaizers. We've considered the two approaches to salvation. Let's look now at the two results of the cross. The first result, it liberated us from the world system. We as Christians are liberated from the world system. We are set free from the world system. Turn and tell your neighbor, we are set free from the world system. Set free from the world system. Again, verse 14. But may it never be, Paul says, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice he says the world has been crucified to me and I to the To the world. Now, the word that is translated world here is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. And in this context, it is referring to the world system. The world system. It's not referring to the people of the world, but rather referring to the system of the world that the people find themselves entrapped and enslaved to. It is a system that is dominated by Satan. 
Now, there are people nowadays that want us to believe that Satan is not a real and living personality. That Satan is just, you know, the modern rendition of Pan or some other Greek so-called God. And so he's got the horns and the pointy tail and the pitchfork. And they look at that and then they look at us and say, well, if that's what you believe, you must be brainless. Friends, that is not at all a good description of who Satan is. The Bible tells us that Satan is a living being and that he was an angel of God and that he stood in the very presence of God, that he was a cherub that covered the glory of God. Talk about an exalted position. But iniquity entered into his heart and he rebelled against the Most High and was cast from the presence of the Lord. But his power of deception was so great that as he was being Pushed out of the presence of God in that exalted position, he deceived the angels of the Lord and a third of them rebelled with him. The Bible tells us that he comes to people masquerading as an angel of light. An angel of light. So what does that look like? Does that look like horns and pointy ears and pitchforks? Not at all. It looks like False religion. His primary tactic, his primary strategy is deception. To deceive people. This is precisely what he did in the Garden of Eden. When he came to Eve and our first accounting of Satan's interaction with the human race was to deceive Eve. Listen, into thinking that she could have a a relationship with God through other means. That you will be like God if you simply disobey Him. Any approach to God that is an approach by human effort and human achievement is diabolical. It is satanic in its origin. So this world, this cosmos, is the world system dominated by Satan. And so it has satanic aims and objectives centered on rebellion against God. It has satanic values that are founded on selfish ambition and lust and greed and antagonistic rivalry. It has satanic desires for world domination. It is Satan's aim to subjugate the nations under his control and to enslave individuals to serve his evil purposes. That's why I have to limit my intake of the news these days. It's too depressing. When you look at the news and you see the world spinning out of control and you see people doing evil things, things that could be described as mental illness, but I would offer that these are evil deeds that give rise to mental illness. And so the world system A world system that is under the domination of Satan is primarily comprised of sin and false religion. A religion of human achievement. And so we're told in 1 John 5 and 19, the whole world lies lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world system is caught in the grip of Satan. A world characterized by rampant immorality, by pervasive conflict and violence that is persistent. 
The people of the world are caught in the rat race. You ever heard of it referred to that way? Have you ever felt like you were caught in the rat race? That you were on the proverbial hamster wheel and you were giving it all you got, but you weren't making any progress? People living lives ensnared by sin. People living lives that are characterized by self-seeking. And what does it result in? It results in futility. It results in emptiness. In fact, the, the writer Solomon said, all of life is vanity and striving after the wind. Henry David Thoreau put it like this. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. I'll never forget I was in Virginia on an academic trip and I had an evening free and so I went to the local theater and I watched an episode of Lord of the Rings. I don't know if this has happened to you before or not, but every once in a while I'll be watching a movie and I'm immediately gripped at the heart and I begin to weep because of what I'm seeing portrayed on the screen. This was one of those times. But the event that was being portrayed caught me by surprise. I was blindsided. For there on the big screen was this little pitiful creature called Gollum. And Gollum was possessed with a desire, with a lust, with a craving that couldn't be satisfied. He had to have the ring. He called it my precious. And as I saw Gollum leaning over, just consumed with this craving for the ring, and he couldn't find the ring, and in agony he was crying out, my precious, my precious. It was as if the Lord said, what a picture of human depravity. What a picture of addiction. What a picture of enslavement. And I began to weep because that is the condition of the human soul apart from Jesus Christ. Without God, people are living just to die. Without God, people are striving after the wind. They are living lives of quiet desperation. Without God, all is vanity. Without God, all is empty. Without God, all is hollow. You will live. You will die. You will be forgotten. Your friends and your family will think of you for a while. Maybe even for a generation or two. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. If the Lord tarries His coming, a hundred years from now, most of us in this room will be long forgotten. Do you remember your great-grandparents? Do you remember your great-great-grandparents? Certainly you don't remember your great-great-great-grandparents and you are their descendant. You live, you die, you're forgotten. And the planet keeps twirling on its axis. That's the rat race. That's the world system. That is the vanity of life. But praise God, He through the cross of Christ has delivered us from the vanity of life. He set us free from this world system. We are liberated from a life of futility and a life that lacks fulfillment. Can you say amen? Philippians 3.20 puts it like this. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the child of God is a citizen of heaven, a stranger and an alien to the world system. A child of God is in the world, but not of the world. How many of you know there's a difference between your boat being in the water and the water being in your boat? (laughs) And from time to time, we must look at our own lives and say, is there water in the boat? Maybe the Lord needs to reach over and flip on the bilge pump (laughs) because I'm getting a little bit dusty in this old world. But it's the blood of Christ that cleanses from all unrighteousness. And we give evidence to a salvation that is sure through the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Not as a means of grace, but of an evidence that we are saved. Hallelujah. Our citizenship has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so now our values reflect the kingdom of heaven. Our priorities are on eternal things. Our desires and our affections are set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to us and we have been crucified to the world. Praise God. But there is a second benefit or result of the cross, and that is that we've been transformed into a new creature. The Christian is transformed into a new creature. Galatians 6 and 16. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He says those who walk by this rule. So the question is begged, what's the rule? We want to know what the rule is. Paul, tell us. Well, Paul has been telling us since the opening volley of Galatians. It's what the entire letter is all about. The principle of salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. This is the primary doctrine of the entire letter of Galatians. In fact, There would be no Protestant Reformation had it not been for the book of Galatians. For it was in studying Galatians and in studying Romans that Luther came to realize we are saved by faith. And truth was restored to the church. This primary doctrine saturates the entire letter of Galatians. From its beginning, Paul has been saying we are not saved by our good deeds not saved because of our merit, not saved according to our works, but we are saved by faith because of God's mercy and according to His purposes and grace. Now, because of the cross of Christ, we have peace with God and mercy from God. So in verse 16, we see this reference to God's peace and God's mercy. And what we find there is a beautiful nutshell restatement of salvation and that we are saved by divine accomplishment. We have peace with God because of the mercy of God. 
That's why. So Paul ends with a blessing in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Truly, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ rests upon the hearts and the minds of those who walk by this rule. Who have come to understand that they are saved by grace. Putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And then keeping in step with His Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. How do you know if you are? Because you're giving evidence to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Friends, let us leave this place today with the full assurance of our salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. And then having received that precious grace, may we walk in it. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, today we do thank You once again for the riches of Your Word, for its treasure to us, and for its clarity, for its profound perspicuity that we can understand the depths and the riches of Christ Jesus by looking at His sacrificial death and rejoicing in His resurrection. And to do all of this, even as we look forward to His return, Father, I pray that you will cause this word to burn in our hearts and to provide before us a clear pathway to walk as we endeavor to live lives that are pleasing to you and that would bring glory to your name. And now, Father, we pray that as we give back to you a portion of that which you've so richly blessed us with, we ask that you would receive these offerings of thanksgiving and that you would help us to know how best to invest them in the work of your kingdom. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you as you give to the Lord.